Content warning. This episode includes discussions of police brutality, school shootings, and environmental racism. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the third and final episode of Descent, a podcast hosted by me, Muna Ali. This podcast explores the stories of community organizers who look to solve global issues in their own backyards. I'm grateful to have had enlightening conversations with activists from around the U.S. who are united in one common mission, improving the lives of the communities around them. Today's episode is an interview with Yusuf Muneer, a Cincinnati-based climate organizer and radical visionary who works with Ohio Youth for Climate Justice and Young Activist Coalition. Yusuf is making strides in improving the greater Cincinnati community through direct action initiatives. As you'll hear in my conversation with Yusuf, the work Yusuf does is in pursuit of a greater goal, the abolition of oppressive institutions. Without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Yusuf Munir. Hello and welcome. Today I'm speaking with Yusuf Munir. Uh, Yusuf is the president of the Young Activist Coalition, a Cincinnati-based organization. Yusuf also is a climate organizer with Ohio Youth for Climate Justice. Yusuf, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Um, what inspired you to start organizing through um, YAC and um, OYCJ? So the very first time that I was actually introduced to activism, um, just as like a concept, was when Donald Trump was elected. And that and that kind of sucks because a lot of the problems that uh, I saw in Donald Trump were obviously around for a long time before Donald Trump and right. since America's inception. Um, but that was kind of one of those ways where a little eighth grade Yusuf who is barely five foot, if, if even five foot, um, saw just how explicit the racism uh, in America could be. Uh, especially when there were conversations about like the Muslim ban, um, building a wall and all of these others, just like really obviously racist things when Mm -hmm. previously, like under previous administrations, it had usually just been an implicit thing. Um, So that's when I first started really thinking a lot about what my role was um, as someone uh, living in America and benefiting from the the privileges and my proximity to whiteness uh, that I get as a South Asian person. Um, and ultimately I, I, I didn't even get involved in eighth grade, um, which I mean, not, not that eighth graders have to be involved, but it was kind of one of those things where I was like, oh, I'm having conversations. So I think I'm doing enough. And it wasn't until the Parkland shooting that I really started doing more than just talking and having like these conversations with my friends, my family, teachers, and all of these other people. Um, Because that was the very first time I'd seen other people my age. And obviously there was, there is, and was a lot of problems with uh, March for Lives as an organization and a lot of those policies that they were advocating for, at least in my eyes, uh, it was a little bit incomplete and very white. Um, But that was, the very first time that I saw young people get the spotlight and like really do things that they believed in and do more than just talk. Um, and so that inspired me to plan the walk out at uh, my high school, Wanna Hills High School. And then the next thing I knew I was at another event and I met uh, a member of Young Activist Coalition, and they invited me to join. And then it just started snowballing from there. Um, and now I am a senior in high school. It's been four years since I first joined, and I am the president of Young Activist Coalition. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about something you said earlier. Um, so you mentioned that like a bunch of previous orgs that you'd been involved with um, were too white and like weren't doing enough. Um, I guess my question is like, what kind of policies do you want to see um, enacted by these groups or promoted by these groups rather? Personally, as um, as an anti-capitalist, I, I don't believe that organizations like March for Our Lives or uh, like Every Town for Gun Safety or any of these other organizations that are advocating for 
like gun control as as they put it um are are going to be effective policies and that's because um there's a quote by angela davis she says radical just means tackling something at the root um and that's that's what these like really very majority white organizations especially every town i know march for lives is supposedly working on it like fail to do because gun control as a whole doesn't really tackle the roots of gun violence a lot of the time, which is for the most part, housing insecurity, lack of health care, uh, poverty, uh, uh, the prison industrial complex, over-policing. Um, and so a lot of the times what those policies really just do is take guns away from working class and uh, specifically working class black families. Like Joe Biden just recently proposed um, something that would essentially only allow wealthy people to get a certain type of gun, which is just like completely indicative of, I think, what the movement has become. And I'm I'm speaking as someone who's very involved with the gun control movement and um, was like the national advisor or a national youth advisor or whatever of uh, students demand action as part of every town. Like it's, it's very, like speaking just for that organization they're extremely white they're not always interested in actually tackling the problems as much as they're interested in uh tokenizing a lot of uh young people of color with organizations like every town and march for our lives what does intersectional inclusive activism look like in an era where you know um white organizations seem to like take control Mm -hmm. I think intersectionality is, is a word like many others that has been bastardized a lot, uh, mm-hmm. which is not, not always ideal, but it, it's, it's something that happens. Um, but I, I think to me, intersectionality and in organizing isn't always will mean like letting people from the communities that uh, you want to help advocating for themselves and allowing themselves to have that autonomy. And then supporting them however you can. Um, and I, I think more than that, it's about solidarity because I, I think a lot of the reasons that movements in the past have been successful or failed is based on whether or not they could unite a bunch of different people from different backgrounds, from different communities. Cause that is right. the only thing that is a truly real threat to the status quo is when the people unite. Like I think Fred Hampton uh, had a, a, a thing known as the rainbow coalition. And that was one of the reasons why the Chicago police department and the FBI assassinated him was because um he was uniting people of different races, of different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, and of all of these different things. And that made him a threat to the status quo. So I'd like to transition a little bit and talk about the orgs that you're involved with. Um, So both um, Young Activist Coalition and Ohio Youth for Climate Justice hosted a green out on December 22nd. Could you explain um, what that green out entailed and I guess the motivations behind it? Yeah, so Young Activist Coalition and um, uh, Ohio Youth for Climate Justice in collaboration with Stand.Earth um, were really focusing on tackling proctoring, have been really focusing on tackling proctoring gambles, um, like horrible, horrible climate policies, specifically the fact that they are constantly violating indigenous land and uh, FPIC, as well as uh, free prior informed consent and also like further endangering already endangered critical caribou uh, habitats. And um, and so that was something that we wanted to tackle specifically because Procter & Gamble has their headquarters right here in Cincinnati and they're kind of in our backyard, which makes it our responsibility to um, make sure that we force them to do the right thing because there's no way they willingly do it. And that was kind of the purpose of the green out because Procter and Gamble is one of the corporations like many others that cares a lot, a lot about how they look to the public. Um, And honestly, I would say that's one of the only thing that fuels a lot of their decisions. And in all honesty, a lot of their way they advertise themselves because Procter and Gamble kind of likes to paint themselves as the good corporation among all of the other evil, bad poo poo ones. 
but it, but in reality, they're they're just as bad. Uh, they're they're just as exploitative. They're just as uh, violating. Uh, they violate other people's human rights just as much. Um, but they do it while talking about how much they recycle or about how they're going to cut their carbon emissions and that'll solve all our problems. Um, and and I think that's why it was really important for us in the green out to kind of highlight all of the, the, the completely whack stuff that they are constantly doing. Um, and so we, we, in the time of a pandemic, took to social media to um, do a green out 22, which essentially just like um, any other social media day of like visibility, uh, like it's happened for Jewish communities, black community uh, um, and a lot of other communities. Uh, it was essentially the same idea, except we, we had like a very clear goal, which is bully Procter and Gamble into really focusing on us um, mm-hmm. because in the past when we'd shown up to their doorstep and handed them a giant roll of t- toilet paper as a petition, um, in the past they had really kind of just ignored us. Um, even when they like pinky swear that they were gonna do a follow-up, it, it had been a lot of just ignoring. And so this was kind of our way of being like, okay, well, if you're not gonna listen to us willingly, we will f- force you to listen to the people. So I think it's interesting that you said that um, Procter & Gamble has been trying to brand themselves as environmentally friendly. Do you think that um, brands nowadays are just doing it for their own financial benefit? Or do you think that they're actually trying to work towards environmental protections? I think one of the things that we always have to be cognizant of is that like environmentalism is not just like Green New Deal or reducing carbon emissions, it is like a radical transformation of our society. And there is no uh, climate justice without um, the abolition of capitalism. And that's something that is impossible to coexist with capitalism. What they're doing is essentially just glorified gardening. Um, Mm -hmm. And and not even that a lot of the times. Um, But I think it's, it's become profitable recently for corporations to brand themselves as, in heavy quotation marks, woke. Um, and you see that all the time. Like when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening, a bunch of these corporations and sports teams or all of these other people uh, were like, ah, yes, we support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and then like the whole time they're ignoring the fact that they're part of what the movement is protesting against. And this kind of like corporatization and commodification of like a very powerful movement is visible in everything. It happened to feminism, like after the women's march, it happened to like the queer liberation movement after gay marriage was legalized. It happened, it's it's starting to happen to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it, It definitely happened to the climate justice movement. And obviously there's like intersections in all of these movements and really they're all just one movement. Um, but I, I think it's, it's a lot of corporations figuring out that, oh, young people will buy things um, like this. We can make a profit off of this. Right. Um, and I think that's definitely one of the most dangerous things that we as organizers have to watch out for. Right. So I think public opinion in and of itself is like more critical of individual actions rather than that of brands. Um, Like I saw a statistic that said that 100 corporations make up around like 70% of all emissions, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think it's, I guess, fair that climate change is being painted as an individual cause problem? Speaking as someone who like my, my mom all the time is always like, oh, Yusuf, you say you want climate justice and yet you take sh- hot shower. Ha ha, gotcha. Right. Um, like, I, I know exactly like what you're talking about and that kind of phenomena. And I, I think like one of the craziest things about that is that literally the idea of an individual carbon footprint uh, came from like fossil fuel companies. Like they literally funded that idea solely so they would not have to take responsibility. I think even more, it kind of like, goes back to this weird culture, the hyper individualistic culture in America um, that's really, really focused on 
like me, like I, me and myself uh, and I, and that's, that's one of the reasons why our solutions to a lot of issues are individual, like lifting yourself up by your bootstrap, uh, not taking hot showers or reducing your carbon footprint, turning your lights off, recycling, um, or all of these other like very tiny ideas or not tiny ideas, but like things that will have minuscule effect on the real issues um, are always offered and looked to as like a great marvelous solution in America. When in reality, a lot of the times that's just straight up racist. Um, like, like the, the, the wealthier you are, the more your carbon, uh, the, the, the bigger your carbon footprint, like, and, and this is not saying that it's on individual wealthy people either, but like, like I don't ever see people who are like, oh, and yet you take hot showers saying that to like, uh, like Jeff Bezos or any of them right. who are just individually ignoring all of their corporations responsible for, uh, like more carbon emissions than most of us can ever imagine. Um, but I, I think the idea like overall that our solution is recycle or take less hot showers is just absolutely silly. Uh, cause like you said, a hundred corporations make up 71% of like all of the world's emissions and us, even if we just complete everyone else on the planet completely stopped emitting carbon, um, which I guess would involve not breathing, which would suck, but I'm not sure the corporations <laughs> would be sad about that. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it would just be, it would not be a solution. We'd still be going on this constant rampaging path towards like destruction that we're currently on and not to sound doom or anything, but like we've got to stop putting the onus on uh, our, our choices as individuals and on the corporations and I, I, like, I think to a certain extent, though, we all have an obligation, especially those of us with some amount of, uh, like, privilege or any privilege whatsoever, to, to work um, towards a better future, um, especially as Americans um, who benefit a lot from imperialism and colonialism and all of these other horrible things. Um, I think we kind of have a responsibility to do what we can to force the corporations uh, to stop being absolutely stupid. Um, and so I would say like our, our, our individual responsibility is not um, recycling more. It's forcing the corporations um, to listen to the people. Um, and in all honesty, eventually um, making corporations a thing of the past. Cause I think that's the only way we can ever really tackle the, the very horrible issue that is um, like corporate greenwashing and like the way that corporations are destroying our planet so rapidly. Right. So I think that also the narrative of like individual causes of climate change is definitely reminiscent of eco-fascism. You know, when people use the phrase humans are the problem or like- We are that, the virus, Muna, don't right, you know? Right. <laughs> or like- I don't know if you saw that thing in like New York where they put up like the amount of time we have left before like climate change like kills us all like that timer that they put up in New York to like shame individuals. Mm. Um, so how does Ohio Youth for Climate Justice fight back against eco-fascist narratives? A lot of the times when people first come into the organization, they kind of repeat these things that they have heard all the time. Uh, they're like, oh, people are the virus. People are the problem oh, if people just weren't here, the planet would be fine. Um, and we are always very, very quick to be like, hey, no, that's just straight up an eco-fascist talking point. Right. Um, it's, not, it's not that people are the virus. We, we always have to explain this. It's not that people are the virus. It's not that people are the problem. It's the redistribution. It's the distribution of resources that is the problem. And in all honesty, just capitalism that is the problem. And I, I think a lot of the times that stems from like when people who are not actually eco-fascist end up saying that it kind of stems from people who just feel like all of these huge things are their fault because of how they've been raised. Um, and so we kind of have to also just explain to people that no, the destruction of the planet is not your fault. Um, 
it's not because of your actions. It's not because you didn't take cold showers when you were in third grade. Um, it's, it's because the richest people in the world decided that making a profit was more important than the present of a lot of communities, especially black and indigenous ones, and the future of the entirety of the human race. Because okay. they decided that their lives were worth more than the rest of ours. Um, I think that's a good transition point to um, the climate policies of our new president-elect, Joe Biden. (laughs) A lot of centrist climate orgs claim that um, Joe Biden's stance on climate change is, you know, one of the most radical we've ever seen. Do you and, I guess, Ohio Youth for Climate Justice, by extension, think that president-elect Biden's proposed climate policies are doing enough to combat climate change? I, I mean, I'll speak for myself because uh, I, can, I can speak better for myself than for OHYCJ, but I imagine they're not that different. Uh, I think a lot of people have just been absolutely deluding themselves, even after the election, um, right. about how much Biden just cares about the environment and how much he'll really do. Uh, even, even like the, the marginal things that he's promised, he's already starting to be like, oh, but the deficit is so huge. How can we do anything? Ugh. Um, and, and stuff like, like hiring like fossil fuel execs or uh, like all of these horrible, horrible people to fill his cabinet. Um, and, and so I think that like one, Biden's not even willing to ban fracking. Um, so I don't think that he's even going to get close to even putting us in a better situation uh, in terms of uh, climate change. Um, but I, I, I think even more than that, it's, there's not a specific policy that I personally believe will fix the problem. Because, right. uh, again, I think that the, the larger issue is capitalism and capitalism's need for constantly producing more and more and more and faster and faster and this overproduction that is like constantly going on that results in us just straight up throwing away large amounts of food uh and having empty houses and all of these other things um that that kind of allow climate change to just uh get worse and worse and i think biden as one of the fiercest defenders of capitalism american capitalism um is not interested in climate justice. What he's interested in is like PNG uh, is greenwashing, is making himself seem like an environmentally friendly uh, dude who's just trying to fight for the future of our kids and virtue signal by saying all of these other really cool phrases. Um, but I, I, I think fundamentally, there's no way that we get our liberation from a politician, uh, and not any American politician, at least, especially not an American president. Um, because at the end of the day, all of them are beholden to money, especially Joe Biden, who straight up told his investors that nothing would change. Well, do you think that liberation is possible for us in our lifetime? Do you think um, the racist, um, imperialist structure of capitalism can truly be dismantled within the span of our lifetime? I am uh, an optimist, um, and so I can't say for sure what happens in the future. I can't say that the only thing that I have control over is um, what I do right now in this moment and what the people, uh, to a lesser extent, what the people in my life do at, at this exact moment. And so I'm going to keep on organizing like, like our liberation will happen any day now. Um, and I'm going to keep fighting tooth and nail until the day that it comes. Um, do I, do I think it'll happen in our lifetime? Um, I think it's feasible. Uh, I, I think that I have to believe that it's possible or, or else I'll literally just fall in a like pit of despair. Um, right. and there are people who do that, but for me personally, I think hope is a lot m- more effective motivator for me. Um, so I believe that we will see the fruits of our hard work, um, at some point, however long it may take, whether it's tomorrow or like 50 years from now, I, I am willing to wait that long. Right. Um, but I, I would also say like anti-capitalism and Marxism has to be an optimistic 
ideology because it's an ideology just built fundamentally on the idea that we can we can change our world we as people have the the means uh, and capability to change the world and um i just think that's very cute of us <laughs> so um, from what I've seen, though, a select group of leftists like to shame everyday people for not having read, you know, enough Marx. Um, you know, they haven't sat through like all three volumes of Capital. Um, do you think someone needs to read enough theory to become intellectually liberated from capitalism or are lived experiences enough? I think like one of the things I'm we're specifically talking about white leftists here. Let's we'll just straight up say it. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. white leftists who do a lot <laughs> yeah. of the theory shaming. Uh, just like just go read theory, bro. Um, but I, I think like fundamentally, theory is literally just the 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 explanation of the lived experiences of the oppressed. Um, right. And to to be like oh, in order to understand racism you need to read theory. I, I think that just means you don't fundamentally understand what theory is. You, you just right. don't. Um, I think, uh, I, I would say though that um, for me personally, reading theory was really helpful in kind of explaining and understanding my lived experiences personally and uh, just like the world around me. And I, I think that's something very valuable that you can get from uh, theory. And it doesn't have to be just from like books or jargon. You can listen to podcasts or YouTube videos or any other medium. Um, but uh, I, I think for me, it kind of just helped put things into words and put into words the feelings and thoughts I'd been having for a very long time. And, and so I thought that was just personally helpful. Uh, so I think in that sense, it can be helpful for anyone to read. Um, theory but do I think it's absolutely necessary for someone who works three jobs and is like a person of color and uh fled like uh uh American imperialism uh has to read theory no I don't I I think what's a lot more important is um actually putting theory into practice um Mm -hmm. which is like praxis um because like ultimately reading does not change anything. Uh, reading doesn't change the situation that we're in, that our communities are in, um, but our actions can and will. Right. So do you think then that um, the importance of leftist theory has become obsolete given the role of real world experiences? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. No, I, I, I think like a lot of, a lot of leftist authors, uh, have been really, really smart, uh, like, or, or, and are really, really smart. Like, for example, Angela Davis, uh, like her book, Our Prisons Obsolete, um, really does a great job of explaining why prison abolition is not just something to advocate for at some time in the future, but immediately and right now. Um, and I don't think that's something that I personally would have like fully understood without reading the book. Um, like I, 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 I understand that prisons are bad and police are, are suck. Um, but it didn't really hit me just, um, how pervasive that culture is. And I didn't really see it in my everyday life. Um, until I read the book, uh, read, uh, Professor Davis's like theory. Um, and so I, 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 I wouldn't say that it's obsolete so much as though that like, you can't force people to like, you can't even expect people to be able to like have the time, especially people like working class people who are just busy and have things to do um, to have like, to like, you can't force them to read theory. Um, but what you, what you can do is explain it to them instead of shaming them. Like if, yeah. if you know something that other people don't, then you have an obligation as an anti-capitalist to make sure everyone else knows that too. Because education has to be a collective effort. It's not just, oh, I know this thing and I will gatekeep it from everyone else. It's, oh, I know this thing. And so I will do my best to disseminate the knowledge in a lot simpler terms uh, to everyone around me. Um, because that's 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 what it's about. Education is very important, 
to our liberation. Um, and we don't get education when we like gatekeep knowledge and pretend that like, uh, the only way you can understand this is just by reading all three volumes of Capital. Um, <laughs> like if you've done that, great. Now work on ex- explaining that to other people. Um, so I think a large problem with theory, though, is that it's just simply inaccessible to the average person. You know, not everyone, um, I guess, understands the complex messages of, you know, Karl Marx, um, Engels, etc. Do you agree um, with the sentiment that leftists need to make theoretical messages more accessible to the everyday person? Oh, 100%. Accessibility is always and like is was and always will be something that's incredibly important to our movements um and to like like skip that step of um making that knowledge more accessible is to betray like the very values that you claim to represent um i i think sometimes that it it kind of feels like like working class people like can't understand these things. And I, I, I wanna be very careful to like not do that um, because that kind of rhetoric is incredibly classist and a lot of times racist. Yeah. Um, and I would honestly even say that it's not that they can't uh, understand it so much that like people aren't taught to, like in, in the American education system, people aren't taught to critically analyze anything. Um, because that makes us a lot more complacent and a lot more easy to like convince to fall into this blue versus red team that is like American politics. Um, So I I think I would say that like we we have to do our part in uh, helping people who like struggle with theory but want to read um, like regardless of their background. But I think that like I, I think that just, I think my issue with that is that it just feels like such an individualistic way of learning. Like for me, learning should always be collaborative and something that like is a community effort. And I, I, I like, like, yeah, you can learn things on your own, but I think people learn a lot better and a lot more effectively when they're doing it with other people, especially with people they trust. Um, and And so I think like, rather than just like giving a glossary of like what these words mean and like spark notes of what different concepts mean. I I think it would be a lot more helpful to learn together and like learning collaboration uh, with your community so that even people who have a harder time with understanding things are there and like, just actively like learning with everyone else um but that's just that's that's my two cents i guess i guess i kind of didn't answer your original question was no you're good you're good <laughs> do, I, do we have to make it more accessible 100 yeah I, but i think the way we do that is not just by making a glossary but by um changing the way that we view education especially anti-capitalist education right and um i guess a critique of um leftist theory in general is that you know it was written by a bunch of old white dudes who were like anti-semitic racist um i guess how do you look past um their prejudices their biases against um jewish people black people and look towards like the greater message of anti-capitalism one i absolutely would not say to ignore uh anyone's history or like they're just incredibly horrible past like honestly given the opportunity i would drop kick karl marx um that's fair (laughs) but like i i think it's important to understand like the 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 broader message that marx had of anti-capitalism but i also think we have to acknowledge how his uh how his views might have influenced that um and so personally like I honestly prefer theory and uh, like like liberation I- ideologies that come from like black and brown revolutionaries across the world. Uh, because one, I think a lot more of them were successful at putting the stuff into practice um, and really like either getting close to or just actually liberating their people. Um, and I, I think that's something that like Marx doesn't offer us. Um, 
I, I, I would say also though that like the ideas that Marx is often credited with uh, cre creating in quotation marks are like were heavily influenced by um, like African nations or I don't know if they were actually I don't remember it was uh, uh, people in like Africa and black people in Africa um, and like the way that their communities worked um, and indigenous communities have been talking and actually putting this stuff like this type of uh, uh, system in practice for as long as uh, like they've been practicing their culture um, right. and so I, I think it's important to understand that um, Marx or any of these other Russian people, uh, or I guess Marx isn't Russian, but, uh, or any of these other people did not invent um, anti-capitalism or anti-capitalism ideologies. They put it into words quite nicely a lot of the times, but they're not the only ones. And honestly, I would highly recommend reading uh, stuff from like black and brown revolutionaries because um, I, I think it's a lot easier one to understand and to to see how that stuff is applicable in your everyday life right do you have any um book or theory recommendations from black and brown revolutionaries specifically that you'd like to provide uh for sure i'm what i'm what i currently like the most recent i read is our prisons obsolete by angela davis um i've been i just downloaded the pdf well i i don't know if that's actually legal but um i i just uh uh started a little bit the autobiography of Malcolm X. The next thing on my list is the autobiography of Asata Shakur. Um, I want to read a lot more about uh, just the Black Panthers and their education programs, but I don't know any particular resources on that yet. Um, and just in general, like reading about uh, the lives of people like Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, um, for all of like their many, uh, like actually like, Che Guevara was fine. He was he was good. Like Kwame Ture uh, was a black revolutionary. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them, um, and they all have a bunch of writings out there. Um, if you just Google their names, and most of them are available online for free. Um, I'm not saying that everyone should go and download them 100%, and I don't know, maybe like share them with their friends. But just saying that is a thing you could do. Yeah. <laughs> So I think it's interesting that you mentioned um, Angela Davis, the Black Panther Party. I think a lot of, you know, Black revolutionary movements, um, I guess, are suppressed by, like, the federal government, the CIA, the FBI. Um, I guess, is the future for um, socialists really possible in today's, like, surveillance age? Do you think that a radical socialist movement can happen, you know, under the watch of, like, the FBI, the CIA, et cetera? I think it's less about like whether or not it can happen and so much as do we have any other choice um, because capitalism is constantly resulting in the deaths of tens and tens of thousands of people just in America and even more uh, abroad. Um, and, and so I think the question becomes not, is it possible, but do we have any other choice? Um, right. And I, I think like, ultimately the answer to that is really simple. No, we don't have any other choice. Like, yeah, are, are some of us uh, gonna get hurt? Um, 100%, uh, there's, there's no doubt. Um, but I think the, the, the price of being a revolutionary is unfortunately accepting that bad things might happen to you. But like Fred Hampton said, you can kill a revolutionary, you can't kill a revolution. So um, to address a conservative talking point, you know, a lot of them say, you know, there's never been a successful socialist nation. There's never been a successful communist nation. What do you have to say to that? One, communism is when there's a stateless society. So, I mean, if there's communism, there is no nation. Um, but okay. I, I would say that, like, honestly, the, the, the best example of uh, the success of socialism that, that I believe in is uh, the nation of Cuba. Uh, and they're probably in what we would call like a transitional state um, because you can't really have communism until the whole world is communist or at least the majority. Mm -hmm. um, but, but Cuba is 
one of the poorest countries in the world. They are suffering under American uh, sanctions and embargoes, um, but they have like a nearly zero percent homeless rate. They have like a, like a very low rate of hunger. Everyone has access to a college education um, or like professional education, uh, depending on what you want. Everyone has access to um, uh, healthcare. Um, their their medical stuff is just absolutely um, like like incredibly great for how like how poor of a country they are, um, and like if, if you want to talk about socialism never succeeding, I would just very much like to compare that to America, one of the richest countries in the world that has incredibly high homeless rates, incredibly high rates of hunger, like tens of thousands of people die from lack of health care um, and all these other things. And like, does, does, that, does that really sound like capitalism is working to anyone? Like, does that sound like a system that's working? And even in nations where they have access to health care and low uh, homeless rates, uh, in capital uh, under capitalism, there's almost always like some some horrible stuff going on. And a lot of those nations, like the Nordic ones, that are painted as models of capitalism of what capitalism should be, engage in heavy imperialism. Um, and that's that's not a, it's not a system that's working if you're sacrificing like the lives of black and brown uh, lives to like just keep the system churning. Right, and. I guess um, to follow up on that, you know, a lot of um, people say that, you know, we've elected, you know, I put this in heavy quotations, democratic socialists like AOC and Ilhan Omar and the squad um, who are going to like reinvent American politics. Do you think that that's like, do you agree with that narrative? Do you think that the squad is necessarily going to um, radically reimagine the United States um, as it is? I don't think it is possible to do anything radical from within the American system. And I think that's like abundantly clear with like the squad and a lot of their actions. Um, I have a lot less issues with Ilhan Omer um, and Cori Bush than I do with uh, a lot of the other um, members. And honestly, I, I, I guess my biggest bone to pick would be with AOC because I think what they've done mostly is bastardize what democratic socialism is actually supposed to be, um, which is supposed to be geared at getting like socialism uh, in uh, through democratic means, um, which I don't personally think is possible through the American system, but whatever, you believe that's possible, fine. Um, The thing is AOC has literally said things like, oh, I believe democratic socialism and capitalism can coexist, which is just, no, like, those those are two completely antithetical ideologies um and i I think that's one of the most harmful things that has come from people like aoc and bernie um is that they they've kind of tricked people into believing that democratic socialism is just when people have health care um and like that's something that's important that's something that's needed but it's not socialism. And to call it that is harmful to like a truly socialist liberatory movement. Um, And I I think in all honesty, one of the reasons why it's impossible for anyone like them, like like a federally elected official to make any changes is because fundamentally their their job description is to keep uh, America going. and America is a country built on racism and heteropatriarchy and uh, like like homophobia and transphobia and just all of these horrible other systems and classism. Right. There we go. I was forgetting that one. Um, and ultimately, you can't change that from the inside of the system because the minute you try to uh, even marginally change it like Bernie did by running for president they will literally do everything in their power to shut you down right right and I think it also is important to point out that there's you know a big like stan culture around like celebrities you know they idolize AOC like yes you're the next president go queen slay queen and it's just I it confuses me because it's like why are you putting politicians on a pedestal you know like, I, I just feel like it's incredibly stupid. 
uh, to to one put anyone on a pedestal, but two, especially someone who literally has the capability to like just ruin people's lives so quickly, just like that. Um, and members of the squad have already made bad votes and done that. Um, but I, I think the idea that you act like someone with this much power is your friend um, and not someone that you need to force to work for you is incredibly harmful. And the, the, the weird celebrity culture around politicians is just like one of the most dangerous things um, because it, it stops you from being able to critically approach these politicians. Um, and in all honesty, it gives them more of a platform to not be able to not like to not listen to the demands of the people because they know that their 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 fandom their stand clubs will all protect them you've talked a little bit about the importance of you know direct action versus i guess um you know our culture of like change.org petitions how does your everyday person get involved with direct action and mutual aid I think for mutual aid, it's one of those things that's there's there's mutual aid can literally be anything. It's it's just a redistribution of resources. You could go walk outside your house every Monday, um, and figure out what your uh, members of your community or your neighbors or like if if there are homeless people like living in your city, um, which almost definitely there are. We live in America. Um, just going out and seeing what they need. That's something that like can be mutual aid can just be anything as long as it is a radical redistribution of resources um and kind of built on uplifting the 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 most vulnerable members of your community um and so it it can be things as simple as like redistributing money online like you get a paycheck you commit to taking out a certain amount of it uh for mutual aid um uh, mutual aid can just straight up be anything like especially if you have a certain skill or uh, like passion that you're good at you can turn that into mutual aid uh, so for example if you, you like teaching um, you can start a community book club that also like feeds the people in your community um, and like that's also like a really great way of building camaraderie and all of those other things and obviously it's a little bit harder when you're like like 15 or like 16 or 17 or like just young um but it's something that you can work with like the veteran organizers of your community to do um and like i was saying it's it, mutual aid can just be anything it's one of those beautiful things that as, as long as you are dedicated to helping the people in your community, it can be considered uh, mutual aid, as long as it's kept radical and not forced down the charity industrial complex, which is like, ah, ha, ha, white saviorism. Yeah. Um, but like in terms of direct actions, honestly, the thing I would recommend, if you, if you can, um, I would get involved with like a radical organization in your community. And these organizations exist everywhere. I just met some organizers from Columbus actually um, after the uh, Casey Goodson protest in uh, CBUS. Um, but I, I, I think like it, the, the best thing you can do is either find like a group of people that are willing to do uh, like, like organize direct actions with you or joining an organization. That's that's honestly one of the most helpful things. So I'd like to transition to a campaign that a Young Activist Coalition has been holding to get school resource officers out of Cincinnati public schools. Could you explain um, your thoughts behind the CPD out of CPS campaign and uh, why you guys started this effort? Yeah, so for me personally, um, I had a uh, an experience with a school resource officer after a protest last September uh, where I was threatened with arrest on a school campus for committing the dastardly crime of trying to leave school and practice my First Amendment rights. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Um, and so that was kind of like the very first time that I had really had an encounter with our school resource officer because my high school is like the the, the bougiest one in our district. Um, it's, it's 70% white and like 20% black in a community that is over, I think, 50% Black, uh, if that tells wow. you anything. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and so our school only has one school resource officer. And so I never really encountered them all that much. Um, but then the very first time I did, I, I just kind of realized just how screwed up the entire system was that we were literally paying cops to do a job that was not designed for them because a lot of times they try to paint them as like, oh, community leaders. We want to form connections between people and the police, um, which like, no, why? That's not, that's not what they do. Like even in the Cincinnati Public Schools District, uh, which we discovered after uh, I, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to backtrack a little before I go on a tangent. Okay. Uh, we kind of realized that in focusing on a lot of the really big issues. Uh, so things like climate change, things like uh, gun control, things like uh, reproductive health care, and all these other really big issues that were constantly in the news, we kind of ended up ignoring the very realities like that we ourselves were going through. Like the majority of our time is spent in high schools um, and we had never really tackled what was going on in them. Um, and so we, we kind of reevaluated what we were doing as Young Activist Coalition and why we were focusing on these things and decided that it would be a lot more beneficial for us to focus it on an issue specifically within our school district, um, but also just in high schools in the greater Cincinnati area. Um, and so that's how we came up with the Fix Our Schools campaign um, and specifically how the, the cops out of school one became a really big demand. Um, and, and then we started doing more research into the school district. And we actually found out that I think, uh, black students are disproportionately given, uh, referrals to the school resource or the referrals to the police that they are, um, uh, disproportionately given suspensions in school suspensions and expulsions. Um, and it kind of took us to the very root of the problem, uh, which was that instead of working on healing people and teaching them to be like good mem good people and like like moral upstanding people uh our our schools were teaching kids and harming little children by forcing like these punitive and incredibly harmful measures on them that only fed into the school to prison pipeline right um, and so that's kind of how the campaign was birthed um and then it all just kind of started rolling from there uh, we now are working with a lot of uh, organizations within the community, including uh, Cincinnati's Anti-Police Brutality Coalition um, and just all sorts of uh, people that know that kids deserve better than to be criminalized. How would you respond to the argument then that um, SROs are like there to protect students from school shootings? How would a policeless school system tackle the threat of gun violence? For sure. Um, like, like I was talking about a little bit earlier um, with gun control, um, one of the, the main issues with a lot of those policies is that it's reactive and doesn't get to the root of the problem. It's mm -hmm. the exact same thing with SROs. SROs were put into schools um, after, shortly after the first school shooting. Um, and since then, one, they've proven to be pretty ineffect ineffective at stopping uh, school shootings, even when they are present. Um, but two, like, it's an incredibly valid fear to have, um, to fear someone coming into your school and hurting you and your friends and your teachers or other, just other people. Um, and I don't want to undersell that point. I, I think it's an incredibly valid fear to have, but I think it's also really, really important that we acknowledge that every day that police are not out there stopping uh, like uh, a school shooting, they are actively harming and terrorizing black and brown students and just straight up literal children. Um, and, and I think that's something that we just always have to be cognizant of. Um, but it, it, to like answer your question directly, how, how do policeless schools work? Um, they, they work by seeking not to punish because it's not just enough to take police out of schools and then keep things like suspensions, expulsions and all these other things. Um, what we need to do is transform our schools one by adding more psychologists and mental health professionals in the place of these cops. Um, and then two, replacing suspensions and expulsions and other punitive measures of discipline with um, restorative and transformative justice 
which actually seeks to heal the harm that is caused in a community anytime it occurs, um, and then teaching people to be better, thereby uh, also teaching people like skills like conflict resolution and uh, healthy ways to deal with their emotions and how to communicate with other people. Um, and all these really important skills that are instead just replaced with, oh, someone did something in quotes bad. So now we have to punish them and cause more harm. Um, and, and so I think police schools are schools that are built fundamentally on healing and restoring and transforming our schools to represent a better future, a future without uh, colonialism, without uh, imperialism, and without racism. Has the Cincinnati School Board then been receptive to your campaign? They definitely, they definitely know that we're here. We've been showing up to their board meetings for like months straight now. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. Uh, we've recently started individually meeting with school board members. Um, and some of them, even if they're not all the way with us yet, um, they're still um, willing to listen, uh, which is something that we can work with. Um, and it's something that we're absolutely willing to work with. Um, there have been some board members that are a lot less interested in communicating with us and working with us. Um, and that's Obviously, that's just how it is. Um, that's, right. you know, some of them don't really serve us. Some of them serve their money and the whiteness. Um, but I, I would say they've been, the ones that we've communicated with so far have been fairly receptive. Um, so do you think they're, the role of school resource officers will ever be eliminated in CPS? Do you see that in um, your school district's future? Oh yeah, 100%. Um, even if it's not the end of this year, um, again, I'm an optimist, um, but YC will most definitely not stop until it happens. Um, and even when I graduate, there's a whole slew of other kids younger than me uh, that are prepared to keep this fight going. Um, and if it doesn't happen this year, it happens next year. If it doesn't happen next year, it happens the year after that. Um, so I, 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 but I do think that we've made an astounding amount of progress in a short amount of time. Um, so I am hopeful. Do you have any um, final words of wisdom for anyone who's listening? Oh, I am not wise. I, I'm 17 years old. I'm, I'm, I'm just as clueless about everything as everyone else. <laughs> um, but I, I would say if you're someone who is interested in, in getting involved, you don't have to know things. You don't have to have read any theory. You don't have to know anything about uh, like uh, the history of movements. All you really need is to know that you care um, about making the world a better place and about helping your friends and your family and your community. And if you want that, then 100%, you can be a revolutionary. Thank you for your time, Yusuf. I appreciate it. Anytime, bro. Anytime. I'm proud to call Yusuf a friend and a comrade. Yusuf's vision on what a cleaner, more equitable world looks like has inspired me in numerous ways. Anyone, like Yusuf said, can be a revolutionary. And I encourage you, the listener, to learn more about the triumphs and trials and tribulations of the revolutionaries who came before us. The Asata Shakurs and the Kwame Tures and the Thomas Sankaras. I could go on and on and on. In this period of human history, it is critical to resist the grasp that our institutions have on us by participating in radical community care through mutual aid and direct action. Collective kindness is the way forward. Descent was created, edited, and produced by me, Muna Ali, for my Global Scholars Senior Project. Global Scholars is a program dedicated to promoting a global perspective within the Central Ohio high school community. Special thanks to my advisors, Brandon Allen and Kendra Polito, for their advice and guidance. 
I would also like to thank Nicole Wright from Peace Catalyst International for connecting me with several of my guests. And lastly, I'd like to also thank Yusuf Munir for taking time out of their busy schedule to speak with me. Thank you for listening to the third and final episode of Descent. Previous episodes can be found wherever you get your podcasts.